Well, we're going to spend time in the Word of God today, and um, we're going to get on over to Luke chapter 23. As we prepare a little bit later this morning for the Lord's Supper, I would like for this message to also be sort of a devotional that will lead us into the Lord's Supper as we consider the events surrounding Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ, many, many, many years ago, 2,000 years ago now. We want to begin by asking ourselves the question, why is it that the world is so dismissive of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that in, in detail? Why is it that the world is so dismissive of Jesus? The Jesus that offers healing, why would you dismiss someone like that? The Jesus that offers salvation from sin, forgiveness and mercy, the Jesus that created you because he is the eternal word of God, the one within the triune God that spoke the world into existence, the one who is the lover of our souls in a greater way than anyone can possibly love you. Why would you dismiss someone like that? Why would you want to get someone like that off the scene? Why was Jesus put to death? We know from our study of the gospels that Jesus challenged the religious order and that was part of the reason why he was put to death. He challenged the hypocrisy, the idolatry, the immorality, and the supremacy of Caesar. He challenged these things. From a human perspective, this is why Jesus wasn't liked, because he challenged these things. And people couldn't see the big picture, that Jesus was ultimately going to sacrifice himself for their sins. So they, they put him to death. The world was angry at Jesus, and when they put him to death, they put him to death in the most horrific of ways. It wasn't enough to hang him. It wasn't enough to quickly cut his head off. They, they had to put him on a Roman cross. And if what happened to Jesus on that cross, as it's described in the scriptures, happened anywhere in the world today, if any government tried to put someone to death through this horrific means of crucifixion, it would become an international event. It would probably spark a war. And yet no mercy was offered to Jesus. He was ridiculed. He was beaten. His back was torn open. When he was thirsty, he was given vinegar to drink. He was left to die a slow and agonizing death on a cruel cross for hours. No mercy was offered to Jesus, even though he was there to offer mercy to the world. This was an atrocious event. So why is it then that we call this Good Friday? Why, why would we call a day like this good when so much of what happened on that day was in fact the very opposite? It was evil. The, the events leading up to it, the fake trials, the, the broken judicial system, the false witnesses, the mode of Christ's execution. This was a very dark day. In fact, some Christians historically have called this not Good Friday, but Black Friday because of how atrocious people treated Jesus. Why did the kings of the world kill Jesus? The kings of the world killed Jesus because Jesus claimed kingship over them. Ultimately, that's why. They, he claimed kingship over them. In Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 46, the darkness and the evil and the sinister nature of the crucifixion of Christ is recorded for us. 
And it says there in our scriptures, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This was an unusual kind of darkness. Time moves forward, okay? And it was dark before it started to get light. This was a spiritual darkness over the land and the sun's light failed. But in the midst of all that, there is some hope. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, which symbolizes pending access to God. The, the curtain, which kept the average man out of the holy of holies in the temple, was symbolically torn in two. And this symbolized what we'll pick up on later in, in the word of God, access to God. But in all of this, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last, at least for a few days. He breathed his last. This is a record of the final moments of a dying man. He's dying alone. He's dying in a dark environment. He's dying cold. Let us not forget he's dying naked. And he's dying forsaken and for the minds of most forgotten. How could this possibly be good? Well, the answer to the question, how can this possibly be good, is in the aftermath of the events that took place. To see the big picture, to understand the broader plans and purposes of God. Let me give you an analogy before I teach on this a little bit further. Imagine that you are driving down the road and you see a body laying on the road. And clearly there's an individual that's been run over by a vehicle and he's bashed up and he's crushed and he's beaten and people are wailing and there's blood everywhere and there's gore and guts. You would come to that event with great shock and you would declare, at least in your mind, this is not good at all. This is very bad. This is a, a tragedy. And suppose you had a, a camera and you had to record that scene and all you had to record was this picture of this broken and crushed corpse on the road. That would be a, a gory sight, a horrific photograph. But if you step back from the corpse and you began to pay attention to your surroundings and you noticed off to the side that it was a group of eight-year-old children that were being comforted by their parents cuddled by their parents, kissed by their parents, and you went over and you asked what's going on, and you discovered that these children were actually playing on the road just moments earlier. And a car came around the corner about to run them over, and a man came running off the sidewalk and pushed all of these children out of the way and was run over by the vehicle and sacrificed his life for the sake of all these youngsters you would then have a very different picture of the event. You would see the horror and the tragedy, but you would also see the purpose and the hopefulness. And if you changed your camera to panoramic and you were able to catch the whole scene, then you would say to yourself, yes, there is great catastrophe here, but this actually is good. Here's a man that gave his life to save others. And this is why we call Good Friday good, not because of what happened to Jesus, but because of what Jesus did and what he accomplished for us. He gave himself, if we see the panorama of scripture, he gave himself for us. He sacrificed himself for our own immaturity 
our own foolishness, our own vulnerability. See, in Good Friday, the scriptures present us with a good God that made people good through his sacrifice, through his death, through the horror of the moment. The wrath of God was appeased. And in Christ, we have the opportunity for eternal life. Now, in the immediate aftermath of the crucifixion, we see people being awakened to that reality. People are starting to get it. The lights are starting to turn on in people's minds. And as the scriptures record this event, it also records for us the responses of three men to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We have a man who was literally converted to faith in Jesus Christ hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And that's a, a, an incredible thing. And if you read the gospel account of that, and I won't read it for you today, we have two thieves, criminals, hanging on either side of Christ. And one is berating Christ and belittling Christ and mocking Christ, even as he's being put to death for his own crimes. And the other man makes this declaration of guilt. He admits that he deserves to be there, but that Christ was innocent. And in that moment, he receives spiritual life. So we have that response to Christ. As people are looking on, one of the men being crucified with Christ is converted. But not only do we have a thief, we also have a soldier that expresses faith in Jesus Christ. And check this out, a Pharisee that expresses faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's interesting that at the, in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, it's all the men that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And on Easter, it's all the women that are the first at the tomb to bear witness to and believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord here is reaching all kinds of people. For God so loved the world... And he uses different events and circumstances for that. But we have both men and women, both on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, really putting their full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They could have seen the cross through the dull eyes of despair. Jesus lost. Jesus is dead. They could have convinced themselves that this was such a waste. Jesus accomplished nothing. There's no redemption in suffering. It's all a waste. But instead, their responses are both good and informative. I want to look at two of them in particular. Let's start with the soldier known as the centurion. In verse 47, the Bible says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, this is a man who's complicit in and participating in the capital execution of Christ. He praised God. Wow. Saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And then we have a Pharisee, a part of the governing Sanhedrin, one of the rulers of the Jews. Verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. 
This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. In other words, you couldn't do work on the Sabbath, so they had to get the body prepared quickly. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. We have two men witnessing the crucifixion as Jesus' life ebbed away. We have the Roman centurion participating in his capital execution. You, you would expect it might have been his mom, one of his disciples, maybe an outer-tier disciple that had followed Christ around that would have been the first to acknowledge the innocence of Christ. But no, it's one of the soldiers that is the first to declare the innocence of Christ. And by innocence, he's referring to the righteousness of Christ. This is a man who is from a class of people who are oppressing and opposing the Jews. And it helped to put Jesus to death. And he's the first to declare the innocence of Christ. That's an, an amazing detail in the first Good Friday. And then a Jewish ruler. Now he's a righteous ruler, but he's from a class a body of individuals that requested that the centurion and the Romans put Jesus to death. There's something in here for us to consider that these, these unexpected individuals are the first in the gospel record to declare the innocence of Christ and tend to his body. How can this possibly be? How can it possibly be, be that two people directly or indirectly complicit because of their status, their occupations, their vocations and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ could declare his innocence. You know what? The innocence of Jesus exposes our guilt. When you actually see Jesus for who he is and all of his righteousness and all the injustice that was done against him. It exposes our guilt. This is one of the reasons why the world hates Jesus. Because his righteousness compared to their unrighteousness exposes their guilt. The centurion, when he sees everything that has taken place, says, certainly this man was innocent. This is more than a declaration of injustice at the crucifixion. This is a worshipful recognition of Christ's innocence. How do we know that? Because in this context, the centurion declares this in a worshipful outburst. By innocence, again, he's referring to the goodness, the righteousness of Christ. Something deep inside of him was touched as he compared himself and the people around him to the savior of the world that died on the cross. This was a supernatural stirring of his heart and soul. Keep in mind that this man was not a softy by nature. He was a man accustomed to brutality. You know, he wasn't a cadet. He was a centurion. He was familiar with blood and guts. And this is a great reminder of the power of the cross to soften even the hardest of hearts. It really is. This man, like you and I, was born a sinner. 
And he just happened to have expressed his sinfulness in some pretty awful ways. But the imagery then of this guilty man standing before his peers, not quietly, not off to the side, not just thinking about it in his heart, not just meditating about it in his mind, but this imagery of a guilty man declaring, exclamation mark, the innocence of Christ in front of his peers. I mean, the irony of this is thick. And yet in the moment, he praises God. What a beautiful picture of grace and opportunity. Opportunity for the most guilty among us to surrender ourselves to the Lord and acknowledge his absolute supremacy. Have you acknowledged the goodness of God in Christ compared to your own guilt? I doubt any of you here have ever played the role of a centurion and been complicit in a capital execution. But all of us are guilty in innumerable ways. And if you do a a mental panorama of this scene, you will see in the scene your own guilt, the innocence of Christ, and an opportunity for you too to surrender and praise him for his grace and mercy available to you. You see, the person of Christ, even in his crucifixion, invites and demands our worship. Joseph of Arimathea, we've read about him as well. He's from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He's a member of the council. The Bible says a good and righteous man. He had not consented to the decision that was made. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Bible says they condemned him unanimously, which means that he was absent. Maybe he had traveled back to his hometown or he'd stayed away from the meeting. He wasn't there. The group that was there was unanimous in their decision. But he had not consented to it. And in some way, shape, or form, he was a follower or some sort of a pre-follower of Christ. He had an interest in Christ. But his actions here are pretty amazing as well. Because he's not afraid to lose face in the sight of his peers to tend to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, many of us struggle with peer pressure. We think of peer pressure, well, that's just a teenage thing. You know, kids in high school, they're all concerned about how they, how they look and whether they got the, you know, the coolest new sneakers on or not and whether they're following you know, the latest trends on Instagram. We think of peer pressure as being sort of a, a teenage thing, but in reality, all people continue to wrestle with this. We want to be liked, we want to be loved, we don't want to be ridiculed, we don't want to be cast aside, we don't want to be, we don't want to look bad. Think of the the pressure, the legal pressure, the spiritual pressure for Joseph just to kind of stay out of the way, to mind his own business, to stay home, stay safe, to stay away from the drama, the action. But here we have him stepping out and actually putting his money where his mouth was, taking Jesus off the cross and putting his body in a borrowed tomb. You know what? Joseph wasn't afraid to look bad because he knew Jesus was good. He wasn't afraid of losing face because he had come face to face with the savior of his soul. Can you say the same thing? Borrowed tombs are an interesting thing. 
In our culture, we typically dig a hole, we put a concrete box in it, we lower the casket into it, we put a concrete lid on it, and we bury it, and that's, that's where the remains stay. But in ancient times, your body would be put into a tomb, which would have a vent hole at the top, a stone would be rolled in front of it, and they would give time for your body to decompose for up to a year. And then they would re-enter the tomb, they would collect up your bones, they would put them in a small box called an ossuary. And that's where your ultimate final interment would take place. So when it talks here about a borrowed tomb, this was a new tomb that had been carved in the rock. I've been in some of them in Israel. It's fascinating to walk into some of the now vacant tombs in Israel. Jesus' body was put in a borrowed tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. This was an incredible act of sacrifice, of honor, of paying homage to Jesus. Why would Joseph put himself out for a dead man? Why express this tenderness to Christ? Because he was searching for the kingdom of God. He was focused on the world to come. He wanted to see God's rule established on earth as we pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He wanted to see what we would now call the gospel, the good news proclaimed. This means that he was a follower of Christ viewed through the eyes of Romans or Ephesians. It's hard for us to know whether he'd been justified at this point, whether he'd been fully converted at this point. We don't know that. But he's presented to us in the scripture as a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at some point, either in that moment or shortly thereafter, maybe somewhat before, he'd been made right before God. Here we see him expressing that to Christ, this final act of worship, at least until the Savior would emerge a few days later. This man is declared to be good and righteous. Now, sometimes we don't feel comfortable with that. We're like, I am not good. Don't call me righteous. Well, the Bible actually uses the language of goodness and righteousness and applies it to human beings. You can be good and you can be righteous. Not absolutely good, not divinely righteous, but God can declare you to be good and declare you to be righteous based upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to you. When the goodness of Christ is applied to you, you can be spiritually regenerated and renewed. Some people have this notion that you become a Christian when you get baptized, that the water somehow washes your sins away. This is called the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Other people think that, you know, you get baptized when you, or you, you become a true Christian when you verbalize it. At the moment you verbalize it, then you're spiritually regenerated. And those are, those are aspects to declaring and acknowledging your faith. And they're all important in the broader work of the gospel in your life. But actually the means of regeneration is when Christ's goodness is applied to you. And your sinful status is removed. And in the eyes of God, not because of what you have done, the goodness and righteousness of God becomes yours. You receive that by faith. You profess that with your mouth. You profess it in the baptismal waters. It's all part and parcel of the package. But the goodness of Christ is applied to you by the grace of God. This was a good man, and he was good because he was a worshiper of the good Savior. And you can be too. 
Are you a worshiper of the good Savior? Have you tenderly reached out and honored him with your life, perhaps even at risk of peer ridicule? Again, remember the early accounts of the gospel? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane and some are cowering and the soldiers come and there's a lot of intimidation going on and some kind of scamper off. Judas had already abandoned him. A little while later, Peter denies knowing Christ. A lot of peer pressure, a lot of pressure to to cut and run. When the officials came for Christ, they came to try to snuff out his message to eliminate him. But in the process, they also intimidated his followers. By the way, the same thing's taking place in the world today, folks. Satan has always used rulers and officials, even ones that think they're right, to push Jesus aside. Jesus isn't really all that important. There's other things more important than than Jesus, like your physical health. The worship of Christ can wait. Conversions can wait. And in the process, the disciples often get intimidated, don't they? Don't we get intimidated? This man was not intimidated. He was a truly righteous man. So worship your Savior today because in a couple more days, you're going to see the panoramic picture. You're going to be reminded of the full story, the end of the story, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who will make everything perfect in his timing and who in the here and now offers to make you and I perfect by applying the righteousness of Christ to us.